Hey, what's going on, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Indestructible Podcast. On this week's interview, I'm interviewing Hugo Perez. Hugo most recently wrote and directed Omara, a feature documentary on Afro-Cuban music icon Omara Portuando. Perez co-produced a feature documentary, Once Upon a Time in Uganda, a South by Southwest competition documentary slated to premiere theatrically in 2023. Perez is currently serving as a writer on John Leguizamo's national PBS series, American Historia. Perez served as editor and co-writer for Elliot Page and Ian Daniels' feature documentary, directorial debut, There's Something in the Water which world premiered at the 2019 Toronto International Film Festival and was released on Netflix in 2020. Perez also served as editor, co-producer, and co-writer on the feature documentary Island of Baseball on Cuba's role in integrating Major League Baseball. Perez was also the recipient of the prestigious 2009 Estella Award for Documentary Filmmaking presented by NALIP, the National Association of Latino Independent Producers. So me and Hugo met while in discussions on a project that's currently in development that I can't necessarily give too many details on. And immediately what struck me about Hugo was the level of care that he puts into the projects with which he decides to get involved in. The project that we're we're working on is a project that I've got to see firsthand Hugo's work ethic and Hugo's attention to detail with regards to scripts, with regards to story structure. And so that instantly got my mind going that I I wanted to interview Hugo because I I find the documentary world so incredibly fascinating because I feel as a primarily narrative director, I've always been curious about tackling a documentary. And with Hugo's past history and his current work, I thought this would be a great interview to to hear about what a documentary filmmaker, what goes into that, what, what, what the process of piecing together that type of narrative looks like. We chat about Hugo's history, how he found his voice, how he works in a collaborative sense. And now, on to the interview. Hello, my heroes, and welcome to this week's edition of the Indestructible Podcast, the podcast for the people, the podcast that can never die. I am your host, the Indestructible Danny Cano, and today I'm sitting here with renowned filmmaker Hugo Perez. Hugo, how are you today? I'm doing great. The sun is out. Um, you know, I'm more or less on top of my work and uh, life is good. Great. And, and Hugo, one of the intro questions that I always love to ask my guests on the show, how did you get to where you are today? You know, tell us a little bit about your journey to someone that may not know who you are. I came to where I am today in a very roundabout fashion. I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a kid who grew up in Little Havana and the Cuban community you know, very Cuban, very Catholic community. Uh, I remember my dad would set up a lawn ornament nativity set on our front lawn uh, and the baby Jesus was broken. So it would blink on and off, you know, so I, so I always knew I was home when I would see the, the blinking baby Jesus, like a vacancy sign. Uh, that's, so that's where I come from. I mean, I grew up uh, when I was a kid in Little Havana, went through 12 years of Catholic Cuban schools and then went to Yale University and going from Little Havana to Yale University is a little bit like Harry Potter going to Hogwarts you know all of a sudden you're in these gothic buildings and you have a fireplace in your bedroom mm. uh, I had I had watched a lot of BBC as a kid so I was I was ready for this life I thought oh yes finally this is what university should be like mm. um, yeah and and uh, just started to 
it's funny because in high school, I was kind of a science whiz and a science mm -hmm. star. And right before I went to Yale, I saw a Charlie Chaplin Film Festival. And I decided, oh, I'd, I'd like to make film. Uh, but, but then I get a little OCD about these things. I was like, I want to make silent film comedies. And so while I was at Yale, the films that I made were all silent film comedies that I starred in. Uh, so I like to tell people, you know, I got my start in the silent film era, uh, my, my own private silent film era. That's great. Um, and then, um, you know, after college, started to work with the New York State Writers Institute and was uh, shooting and editing these profiles of contemporary writers, some of the great writers of the 20th century, uh, Margaret Atwood, Frank McCord, Hunter Thompson. Uh, I got to meet people like Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Uh, I got to spend time with a very young Juno Diaz, um, you know, Derek Walcott, the Nobel Prize winner. I was just a kid out of college and I was getting to hang out with all these amazing figures. And around the time I started to get interested in nonfiction filmmaking, I met the, uh, the legendary filmmaker Albert Mazels at a, at a screening he did at the Film Forum in New York. And he invited me to his office and we became buddies. He became a mentor of mine. And that really was probably as much as anything else. It kind of nudged me into nonfiction. And then, you know, for the last, 20 years or so I've been um, I've been making feature documentaries uh, as a director, as a writer, um, you know, as an editor, you know, freelance working for other people and now increasingly, you know, writing and story consulting and other people's projects. So that's a kind of a nutshell of, of how I went from Little Havana to uh, the wilderness of Bushwick, Brooklyn, where I currently work and uh, and live. I was going to say, Hugo, I think that that's incredibly fascinating. The, the, almost the yin to the yang of the, of the changing of the guard of where you, where you were raised and then ultimately where you found yourself later in life. Do you feel that that changing almost, almost like a culture shock of learning a new culture, learning a new surrounding? Do you feel like that helps you now as a nonfiction filmmaker? Because you know what it's like now to go into a new world that maybe you're not well versed in, but you take stock of you, you because you're coming in almost, let's say, as an outsider, you you learn to to view the surroundings. You learn to take stock. Okay, this is the building where I'm going to have to go to do my essays. This is going to be this. Do, do you kind of go into new surroundings with a more broadened mindset because of your past experience? I would say yes, but not uh, because even when I was growing up as a kid in Miami, I was always a little bit of uh, like an alien dropped into that community. You know, I was a voracious reader. Uh, I was probably in terms of my grade level, I was way ahead of my classmates. And so I spent a lot of, a lot of time in, uh, in places very far away in my mind, places very far away from Miami, Florida. Um, so, you know, you know, and by the time I, I went to Yale, I was ready to go on the hero's journey, right? I was ready to like leave, you know, the, the village that I was in to, uh, to go off and, and uh, find adventures and fight monsters and explore strange new lands. So, so I think that uh, I'm a voracious reader and, my, and I feel like from a very young age, my interests were not those of my contemporaries. I've always been the kind of a little bit um, removed from, um, not that I'm not part of my community, but I just have, I, I have a different way of looking at the world uh, or I had as a kid a totally different way of looking at the world 
than just about anybody in my community. And, and, and when I got to Yale, I started to meet other people that were kind of similarly weird, you know, and that were really uh, obsessed with like esoteric arcane uh, knowledge. Uh, so I would say it was uh, maybe a little bit of the reverse of what you said in that, that I, as, as I, when I went to Yale, I finally found some other people mm -hmm. that were maybe a little more intellectual than uh, I was accustomed to in Miami. You know, Miami was not um, a town where there was a lot of high culture or high culture that I was exposed to. Uh, and so when I went to Yale and then later to New York and I got to hang out with people that were really interested in writing and making films and the arts and theater, and I got exposed to all this stuff, it was really, uh, yeah, it was really mind opening for me. And it was, uh, and, my, and, you know, my brain was ready for it. Exactly. I, I, I love that sense of, though, of innate curiosity that you had inside you, Hugo, because I oftentimes tell any any person that's ever interested in any type of field, I always just say foster that sense of interest, foster that sense of just wonderment that you if there's something out there that you truly enjoy, you know, get get to learn the details about it, get get to learn the ins and outs of things that interest you rather than surface level. So I think it's great to hear that you sticking to who you were sticking to that innate sense of creativity, you ended up finding your tribe, as you stated later on in life. Uh, would you recommend that for, for anyone interested, not even in the arts, but to, to foster that sense of creativity, that sense of wonderment? Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, you know, I, curiosity is a great word uh, and one that has probably driven my life more than any other single thing. Yeah, I've been very curious from a very young age uh, and have followed my, my fancy a lot. And the people that I tend to associate with uh, or the people that I most enjoy spending time with, you know, whether it's friends or collaborators or, or partners or girlfriends are people that are curious about the, the world around them, you know, and they like to ask questions and, and, and uh, they, you know, they like to see new things and they like to be, to have their worldview challenged a little bit. Yeah. So, so those are really, I think, you know, today we all get tend to get divided in terms of like, well, you know, you're Latino you know, you're brown, you're black, you're white. Um, but I think there are other ways to parse humanity, you know, because I think that I find that there are a lot of people of all, you know, shades and colors and ethnicities that that share my curiosity about the world. Uh, and then at that point, it's just like, you know, what what neat stuff can we uh, can we explore together? You know, and we could be from very different backgrounds or ethnicities or whatever but we're just really curious about the same stuff together. And that, that for me is how I, I um, is one of the ways that I relate to, to the world. I think that's beautiful, Hugo, because I feel as we, we slowly grow and grow more and more connected with, with things like the internet, with things like social media, we you know people are finding now what we've always known is that people are more similar than what maybe perhaps what may have been thought of in the past. I, I oftentimes find that creatives, you know, we come in all shapes and sizes and colors. So, you know, find that tribe, find those people that, that are giving you that sense of, of creative 
purpose. You, you know, I, I, I play in music, I play in bands, I'm also a filmmaker myself, and I oftentimes love surrounding myself with people from different backgrounds, but I love getting to hear their takes on things. Uh, tell, tell me a little bit about your, your creative process, your collaboration process with some past projects that you've worked on. Uh, my creative process really is, uh, is you tug at a thread and see what unravels. And that, I mean, that, that is the, the kind of the basis of everything. It's just, I, um, as an avid reader, I, you know, one, you know, one of the things I've, I've read just about every day of my life is the news. I had a subscription to the Miami Herald when I was six, uh, which I read religiously every single day till I went off to college. And then I was reading New York times and other stuff. Uh, but you know, so for me, it's oftentimes uh, just a little article catches my attention. Uh, I'll give you an, an example. I don't know, like 20 some years ago, I read an article about an illegal plastic surgery clinic in somebody's apartment in the Bronx, right? There was a woman that was doing butt enlargements in her living room. You know, she would basically take liquid silicone and inject it into women's asses to, you know, to yeah. create those shapes. Now, it's no surprise to your eye that this is inherently not safe and not a good idea. Uh, and so I was I, reading about this and just imagining that world. And I came up with this, this idea for a, for a comedy about a, a flaca, right? A skinny girl that decides to go to one of these places and, and then hijinks ensue. So I read a little script and that script won the, uh, the HBO short film award at the New York, New York Latino film festival. And they gave me some money to make it. And so I made the film, which ultimately was Betty La Flaca. I'm happy to share a link with you. And um, which uh, was very well received. You know, people loved it. It played before every single film at the New York Latino Film Festival that year. And then wound up being on HBO for um, for a couple of years after that. They did, I did a two-year license with them. Um, so it's just an example of like something that caught my eye. I mean, I could give you examples from this week of stuff like that, but I don't want to give away my ideas before I've had a chance to do them. Uh, but, but needless to say, like just last night, there was a, a situation, again, a darkly comic situation, you know, having to do with, uh, with identity and somebody stealing somebody else's identity. And I thought this is interesting. Uh, so I put it in my, I've got, I keep a little uh, bookmark folder on my browser of uh, movie ideas. And so that, you know, I went down a little rabbit hole, found five or six articles about the subject, put them in there, and now they're just filed away. The, that Those stories from last night connect to, there are two or three other similar situations over the years. is like this particular storyline. And again, I don't want to give it away because it's like a great idea. Mm -hmm. And I, I, you know, I don't want somebody else to do it before I get a chance to do it. Anyway, so that's a, a, a little bit how you know, my create, my creative as a writer, like I'm always just looking at the world around me uh, for inspiration. You know, mm -hmm. and it could be the news or it could be a story somebody tells me. Uh, sometimes these days it's like weird little things you see on, on social media, Instagram stories, and you're like, oh, hmm, let me make a note of this. Uh, as far as collaboration, uh, that's a tough question because there's so many different ways to collaborate with people uh, and it just depends on the nature of the thing that you're working on. I mean, you know, I work a lot on like small things with friends mm. where it's just like, Hey, like we're make a little team and we work on something together and it's just for fun. There's no money involved. Uh, there's no, 
there's no stakes, right? And then, you know, the other end of, end of the spectrum is when you start to work on things where there's a lot of money involved, you know, that's more complicated because then you need to make sure that everything, everybody agrees on everything. Uh, and so there's much more of a negotiation that happens amongst collaborators uh, to make sure that everything kind of goes smoothly. Exactly. It, it's almost as if what I'm hearing here, Hugo, is that every project is its own machine. Every project is its yeah. own endeavor to take on. And as you go forward, you you find your your that way that you're going to collaborate to make the best product possible. Every every project. I mean, there's some filmmakers that have been very lucky, and they have a producer, and they've got a team that they work with over and over and over again. Hmm. Uh, but that is is almost never the case these days. You know, it feels like every time. Every project, it's a new team, it's new collaborators. Uh, you're trying to learn each other's, you know, language, yeah, um, and figure out like how everybody fits together, you know. So, but you just have to be open and you have to listen, you know, because that's the most important uh, thing in any of these collaborations is just to listen to uh, what other people have to contribute and what their needs are, you know. And if you don't listen, that's that's where collaborations can go south. And in particular, Hugo, I'd love to talk with you about some certain projects. Uh, in particular, I know that you worked as an editor and co-writer for Elliot Page and Ian Daniels' documentary debut, There's Something in the Water. You know, if you could tell us a little bit about uh, that whole process. Well, that, that pro project came about because uh, Ian Daniels and I had been in a writer's group together for about a decade. So we're pretty close friends. And he's, uh, he's been very close friends with Elliot, formerly Ellen Page. They had gone out to film some material about environmental racism in Canada. And their intention had not initially been to make a film, but they got back and they're like, oh, let's, we should make a film. This is really good. And so I was approached and they, they were, it's funny because Ian called me up asking for a recommendation for an editor and they had a really tight turnaround, right? Because this is... Uh, I don't know, a couple of months before the Toronto Film Festival. And they're like, we, we want to, we don't have a cut. Uh, and we would like to submit and potentially play at the Toronto Film Festival in two months. Now, I don't know if you know anything about the timeline for these things, but usually. Yeah, that's not that's usually least, how it is. Usually yeah. it's at least six months. And yeah. so I said, listen, uh, I think nobody else is going to tell you that it's possible. So I think you should just hire me uh and and then we'll go from there and and it was great you know we i mean the, the one thing i said is we need to all agree on the direction that we're going to take immediately like right now and then this is the only way we don't have time to explore different avenues or paths we just have to pick a direction and run with it and then we had this crazy roller coaster ride uh, for the next two months, you know, we we had a rough cut in a month, which we submitted to the head of Toronto. And the next day we got our acceptance. And then it was we had four or five weeks to finish the film after that. And it was it was nuts. It was insane. It was it was. Uh, but yeah. what made it possible was that we were all communicating with one another and we were all on the same page. Mm. And, you know, we were all pulling in the same direction. And, you know, we just went for it and we did it. And that, and that film world premiered at the Toronto Film Festival. And then I uh, wound up premiering on Netflix um, nine months later. Hmm. And, and to me, Hugo, what that 
serves as a reminder there is of another case of you finding your tribe. I, I think the the note there is that when you said that you were all on the same page, I, I think that that's sometimes when you find that that team that we're all in this together, we're all in this to make the best film possible, or we're all in this to make the best thing possible in general. That's when you truly find the best creative endeavors when everyone comes together for this shared purpose. And, and now Hugo, as part of your Omada documentary, talk to us a little bit about that. Well, for those of your listener, I mean, Omada is Omada Portuando, who is an iconic Afro-Cuban singer, currently age 93, who uh, has been performing since 1950. So seven decades plus. Uh, she's uh, she's an icon, not just in Cuba, but in Latin America and around the world. And, and, and some people compare her to Billie Holiday and they say that she's the Billie Holiday of Cuba because of the way that uh, she sings with great feeling. Mm. Her nickname in Cuba from very early on was the, uh, the bride of feeling or the girlfriend of feeling. It's like La Novia del Feeling. Mm. was her nickname it doesn't translate exactly but it basically just means that she's saying with great feeling and uh i don't know 2017 i was in cuba and i did an interview with her for a documentary about the negro leagues that um that most people don't know that there was a lot of uh like exchange or interaction between the negro leagues in the u.s and the cuban national leagues and that omada's dad uh, Bartolome was uh, was one of the great ball players yeah. of the 1920s, and so so for this other documentary, we did a short interview with her. She had to go and get in a car to fly to Poland for a tour, and so her son and I were sitting around in the kitchen, and he, um, you know, he he asked me. He said, "Hey, you know, would you be interested in doing a film about my mom?" and um, and I thought, you know, I thought about it overnight. The next day, I said. Yeah, you know, like, sure, let's mm. let's try this. And I thought, this is an interesting opportunity to create a portrait of an artist in the twilight of their career. You know, mm. imagine if, if you could have spent the last couple of years of uh, Ella Fitzgerald's career, yeah. Piaf's career with them, you know, and, and this is the opportunity that I had. And I thought that there was something very moving about when I would when I would listen to her singing today as opposed to recordings from 30, 40, 50 years ago, there's just a kind of depth of feeling now that's even more powerful than it was before. And and I thought there, you know, there's something interesting here. And yeah, and so then uh, I would manage to get support for the film and uh, was off to the races. And we premiered that at Doc NYC at the end of 2021, uh, Film Festival in New York. And uh, are just out, you know, sharing the film with people. Exactly. And I, I was lucky enough myself to actually get a screener of the film. And it's fantastic, folks. When when it finds the right home, you know, you're, you're going to love it. It's definitely I, I love seeing films like that, that show a part of history that maybe to to the to an American audience, we may not have been that familiar with, but it shows us that there's so many beautiful, there's so many powerful narratives out there that are still looking for that right person to tell it, that are still looking for that person to to shine the light on something that's always been there. That's just, if it got the chance, if it got the, its moment, we would see the true beauty in it. So kudos to you there, Hugo. That 
I'm, I, it was a moving, incredible picture that thank you for sharing that with me. Oh, it was my pleasure. Yeah, I'm, I'm, um, I'm happy to share it uh, with you and with other people. Uh, it was uh, a kind of a, a privilege to get to work with an artist of that caliber and to, and to you know, work with somebody who had basically dedicated her entire life to her art and had, be, had mm -hmm. make, made a lot of sacrifices, had made a lot of compromises in order to keep doing what she was doing. And she's still doing it um, right now. I mean, Saturday night, she's got a show in Mexico City. <laughs> That's great. I, I love that. I, I love that continuous. She's continuing that creative curiosity inside her and and i know hugo you yourself are going to be doing that with many many great projects down the line and just in closing here hugo i want to say that it's been great as well collaborating with you on a on a secret project that we can't necessarily talk about yet but uh it's been great getting to learn from you getting to hear your take on things and then finally just in closing here for everyone listening where can we find you online where can people find some links for some of your projects uh, you know, I guess the, the, the one place I, I, you know, post regularly is Instagram. You can follow me at Kino Hugo, K-I-N-O-H-U-G-O. Kino is, uh, is kind of a cine and kind of Russian, it's, you know, so it's like, uh, Ziga Vertov and Ser Sergei Eisenstein had like Kino Pravda, uh so i just thought it was so it's kino hugo like cine hugo at instagram and i and, you know whenever i've got screenings or something coming out i usually post stuff there 